You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb a reward. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 416 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, June 25th, 2022. Today, we're going to be talking about Roe versus Wade being overturned. As of yesterday, the day many of us thought would never come finally did come. The landmark precedent set by the 1973 Supreme Court decision in Roe v. Wade, making legalized abortion the law of the land for nearly 50 years, was officially overturned with a ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Now, it's interesting to me, beyond just the ecstatic, celebratory happiness that I feel, it is interesting to me that the most vocal critics and opponents of Donald John Trump have for years impugned the character of those who voted for and vocally supported his 2016 run for president, plus his four years in office, plus his bid for re-election in 2020. But this decision right here is why we voted for Trump over and against Hillary Clinton in 2016. Trump pledged himself from the get-go, publicly, clearly, without equivocation, to nominating two to three pro-life constitutionalists to the Supreme Court who would then overturn Roe v. Wade. And that is exactly what he did. What he said would happen as a result of nominating those justices to the Supreme Court is exactly what happened. Moreover, what we said were our reasons, are the exact same reasons for celebrating. Our reasons for having voted for him are our exact same reasons for celebrating now. This is vindication. This is what we voted for. This is what we were hoping would happen. I'll play for you a little clip, actually, because for those of you who may have forgotten, it's been a long several years since he said this. But I think for those of us who don't remember exactly how clear he was or exactly what it was that he said would happen or what he said he would do, I want to play this because it is important to the point of integrity character. Take a listen. If that would happen, because I am pro-life and I will be appointing pro-life judges, I would think that that will go back to the individual states. But I'm asking you specifically, would you if like If they to... overturned it, it'll go back to the states. But what I'm asking you, sir, is do you want to see the court overturned? You just said you want to see the court protect the Second Amendment. Do you want to see the court overturn Roe Well, if we put another two or perhaps three justices on, that's really what's going to be... Ha- that's will happen. 
And that'll happen automatically, in my opinion, because I am putting pro-life justices on the court. I will say this, it will go back to the states and the states will then make a determination. And there you have it. That's exactly what did happen. What he said would happen is what did happen. And he kept his word. And for all of the criticism by Never Trumpers, who said that evangelical Christians in America were selling their souls out to someone who was a fake and a fraud and a phony, and we would get nothing in return at all. You can eat those words now. We'll wait. You, you can eat your words. You were wrong, and I hope you're still celebrating anyways, because this is a great day. This is an absolutely great day for the United States of America. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. When we voted for Trump, when we publicly, vocally supported him and encouraged others to vote for him, we had that in mind. We did not forget that righteousness exalts a nation. We had that very much in mind. But first things first, when you're dealing with Nazi Germany and General Patton uses some rough language and occasionally gets a little bit carried away in his treatment of certain ideas and their representative people, you need a Patton because the existential threat is not how he answers when a journalist asks him if he reads the Bible. He says every damn day or every goddamn day, actually, I think is the direct quote. No, the bigger threat is millions of men, women, and children in concentration camps being starved and shot and beaten and gassed to death. That's the bigger problem. Righteousness exalts a nation. And let me tell you, for nearly 50 years, righteousness has not exalted this nation. Whether we have been wealthy and powerful is a side issue to the question of whether we have been truly blessed. And we can say, God bless America. And I have many, many times. I've prayed that sincerely. And yet, righteousness exalts a nation. All of this wealth and power may not be such a blessing if we do not love God, if we don't pursue righteousness, if we don't rescue those who are being led away, taken away to death and slaughter, if we don't regard the fruit of the womb as a reward, as the scriptures say. But nevertheless, it's not over, of course. American leftists are raging at the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization from yesterday. Leftists are absolutely raging. And I say, let them rage and pay the consequences. That would be better than our whole country going off the cliff morally, spiritually. 50 years, that's enough. That is enough. But the leftists didn't get what they wanted here, or they stopped getting what they've been wanting. They will no longer have a free hand to murder their unwanted children in utero. So now they're threatening everything from domestic terrorism across the U.S. over the next several weeks. Watch that turn into months or years if they're not stopped, to also threatening to murder Supreme Court justices, particularly the first black Supreme Court justice, 
Justice Thomas. You see leftists openly talking on Twitter about assassinating Supreme Court justices and burning the Supreme Court building in our nation's capital down, literally burning it down because they were told no. They don't like that word. They do not like that word no. And yet ordered liberty demands a answer of no when evil is afoot. You cannot have liberty, as I'm reading right now, Oz Guinness's A Free People's Suicide, you cannot have liberty when you destroy the basis for liberty. And for 50 years, we have been a slave as a people to sin and folly. It is actually the most liberating thing imaginable, given the circumstances on this topic in particular, to say no to abortion, to say no to sanctioning the murder of unborn children. That is the most liberating thing. Now, it's important to note, even though Roe v. Wade has been overturned, that does not mean that abortion is suddenly illegal across the U.S. As Trump said, the question then goes back to the states. So this is not over. I would certainly support a nationwide ban on abortion. And depending on what happens with the midterms, maybe we get a supermajority in both the House and the Senate, and maybe a nationwide ban happens. That would be excellent, because all potential victims of murder should be afforded equal protection under the law. That is the big idea, equal protection under the law for those who are unborn. They are human beings. They are not human becomings. They're human beings in actual fact right now. Red states will begin banning abortion outright immediately since this is going back to the states. The red states, the Republican states, many of them, over a dozen, have automatic mechanisms in place already. Now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned at the Supreme Court, the ball being in their court within the next 30 days, The number I've seen is 13 who will automatically ban abortion. Several more besides, soon to follow. But blue states are going to see an influx of abortion tourism, as it's being called. And what that is, is where blue states will continue allowing abortion access and might even further reduce limitations might further promote it. You will see people from red states where they are prohibited from getting an abortion traveling to Democrat-controlled states to get abortions performed. Uh, We're already seeing also major corporations telling their employees that we will consider it part of your healthcare benefits, that we will cover the travel expenses for you to go to a blue state to get an abortion. So what you see there is you see an encouragement of abortion, which is really rather sick when you think about it. You've got corporations that want to keep their employees unburdened insofar as they don't want to be burdened. Unburdened, so they continue on making the company money. So those companies are going to pay for their employees to get abortions, either for themselves, if they are female employees, 
you have to be a woman to get pregnant, by the way. You have to be a woman to get an abortion, therefore, for the child in your womb. But also if you're a man, if you're a male employee, your wife, girlfriend, or fiance, or significant other wants an abortion, then a lot of major corporations, a lot of big names are telling you right now, we will make that happen. We will subsidize that because they think there's a profit in it. They think there's money to be made that way. If they didn't think that there was money to be made that way, they wouldn't be doing it. But it's really rather sick when you think about the math that is being done here. Still, do I make more money if I support you getting an abortion or do I make more money if I don't? How much money does it take to push you over the line into thinking that an abortion is a good thing, that murder is a preferable choice to make? Answer me that. How much money does it take? 30 pieces of silver? What? I would say too, though, watch for similar dynamics to take shape between those states that allow and disallow abortion compared with those states that formerly allowed and disallowed slavery. We do have precedent for how this is going to look, and we have precedent in slavery, more specifically, more to the point. There were states where you could have slaves, and you could do whatever you wanted to your slaves. They were your property, your property, your choice. And then there were states where you couldn't. You couldn't own slaves. And there were some states where if slaves escaped to you, they were free. They get that far, they're free. And good luck trying to come after them. You will not get help from the locals. They will actively oppose you. They will actively help to harbor the slaves who escape from you. And what was the dynamic between states where slavery was legal, where it was trumpeted as being a moral imperative, a bedrock of civilization and propriety, necessary for personal economy? What was the relationship between those states and the states which said, no, this is wrong, this is evil, this is heinous. We will not participate in this. We will not condone it. No. Uh, Eventually, at a certain point, the relationship so soured that a civil war was fought over it. The states which will continue allowing for abortion and will even expand abortion access are our equivalent of those states that most vociferously defended the institution of black chattel slavery a century and a half ago. Make no mistake, it was Democrats then too who defended the institution of slavery to the point of ripping the United States in two. And then when they lost the Civil War, they founded the KKK to wage guerrilla war against Republicans, black and white, who ran for political office and campaigned for equal protection under the law for black Americans after emancipation. Note also it was Republicans then as well who fought for an end to slavery in America and won the Civil War, by the way, and then fought the KKK and segregationists to demand equal protection under the law. But Democrats have played word games. They have argued semantics for decades, for all of my lifetime, for most or all of my parents' lifetimes. 
since at least Lyndon Baines Johnson, Democrats have done all in their power to put the dynamics of slavery back in play while masking their malice and caprice in euphemisms. They have used the welfare state, and contraceptives, and no-fault divorce, and the public education system, and abortion to essentially put us back into as bad a condition as we were in when slavery was legal. Only you can't do it only to people of a certain race. You just do it to the whole country. Everyone who's poor, everyone who lives in a low-income area. Let's put up some abortion clinics in minority communities and in poor communities. And let's really encourage these poor people who get a shabby education in the public schools. Let's really encourage them to do the right thing and get an abortion so we don't have so many minorities and poor people. Unless the minorities are going to vote for us, you know, in that case, we'll just encourage the poor minorities to get abortions. And all the while, Democrats since Lyndon B. Johnson have hidden their wicked intentions. They have concealed the base nature of their vision for this country in mercenary support for civil rights and so-called civil rights. Not all that has been trumpeted as civil rights has actually been civil rights. Because here's the thing, when they, (laughs) dependent on Republican support, were able to pass civil rights legislation that gave African Americans in the 60s equal protection under the law, equal access to important institutions in American life. When they got everything accomplished, they kept looking for more and more civil rights to trumpet wedge issues. Because it's not a great look when you have to have Republicans on board with voting for civil rights legislation in order to pass it, but then you want to claim that as a reason to vote Democrat. Uh, Actually, that might be a reason to vote Republican. Mm, Okay, well, shoot. How can we distinguish ourselves from the Republicans? And as they've tried to cook up more and more ways to separate themselves and to make themselves special, Democrats have promoted sexual immorality. I mean, I'll I'll say this, and I'll try and be careful here how much I say, but I will say this. It being June, I see a whole lot of logos that are rainbow-colored, and it's not because we are trying to remind ourselves of how good and gracious God's promise to never destroy all life on earth with a flood of water is. How thankful we are that God in his mercy and his grace stays his hand and withholds final judgment for now, because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. Now, the rainbow logos and the rainbow flags are an alignment by these corporations with Democrats, first and foremost. And the irony, too, is a lot of the same folks, a lot of the same establishment, Republican, status quo, respectable conservative types who decried American evangelical support for Donald Trump in 2016 and 2020 
and on, possibly in 2024 as well, they knew exactly where to stand with the Confederate flag when the Democrats said, we need to ban it outright, open season on anybody who's flying the Confederate flag because Democrats have rebranded themselves. Now they're promoting critical race theory as, again, a wedge to accomplish their wish list, their utopian wish list. But never Trump Republicans, big name establishment types in the church in America have been telling us for years, we have a moral imperative to side with Democrats on banning the Confederate flag, removing statues of controversial figures who may have held to some views that we don't agree with anymore regarding race, regarding ethnicity, regarding gender roles, etc. And yet, when the rainbow flag is flying, you don't see op-eds being published in the Atlantic, the New York Times, Newsweek, the Washington Post, from big-name evangelicals and never-Trumpers. I don't. I don't see them doing the same treatment. But what they do is they play Benedict Arnold. They play Benedict Arnold, and they should rather sell out our nation's founding and their own party than miss out on one iota of the credit that they think they deserve for being such brilliant heroes. But imagine being angry right now that unborn children will no longer be so cruelly disposed of. If you're a Democrat and you believe that abortion is women's health care, or if you are an establishment Republican type who is angry at having to eat your words regarding Trump supporters, regarding the Make America Great Again people, the overwhelming majority of American evangelicals who voted for Trump, who supported Trump, who still would vote for Trump and still would support him if he ran again in 2024. This is a question that came up in our In Gladii Veritas, the Sword of Truth writing club last night. And it wasn't so much asked as hinted at that we hope the Never Trump folk can celebrate right now. We should like for them to celebrate. And yet that implies as well an unspoken suspicion that they may not be celebrating. They might actually be upset that they were wrong. And therein lies the whole problem with the likes of Jonah Goldberg and David French and, yes, some big-name pastors as well. They staked their reputations on Trump being wrong, on Trump supporters being wrong, on the whole lot of us being a basket of deplorables. They staked their reputation early, and then it became personal. And then confirmation bias made it impossible to reason with them. And so now we don't just have two Americas where there's the Republicans and there's the Democrats, there's red states and there's blue states, there's conservatives and there's progressives, there's the right and the left. No, you have folks who think that America, though imperfect, should be loved, stewarded well, that as Edmund Burke would say, we have a duty to our ancestors who worked, who bled, who died in many cases, so that we could have freedom, not to sin, but 
to serve God, to love God, to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, to raise families, to love our wives and our children and provide for them and protect them, to train up our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You have folks who believe that this country, though imperfect by God's grace, has been a shining city on a hill that we ought not to hide under a bushel. And you have, on the other hand, one group that wants to burn it all down. That's their idea of a shining city on a hill. Is a city that they set fire to when they're told that they can't murder unborn children when it's convenient. And then we have a third group, which is like the nobles in the movie Braveheart or in the real-life story of William Wallace. The nobles who are all too happy to show up on the field of battle against the king of England and cut a deal for more land and better titles. They're not there to fight. They're never there to fight. They're there to make a good showing and to go home with fat pockets. People are people. We're people. They were people. But again, imagine believing so strongly in your right to choose to murder a child that you call for burning down your own country, doing violence to Supreme Court justices and their families when they tell you no. On that note, for too long, Democrats have gotten away with the help of establishment, sellout Republican voices, labeling themselves as pro-choice, as, a, as, if, <laughs> as if that was the most intuitive alternative to being anti-abortion, so-called. Democrats and establishment Republicans alike have been all too happy to shake hands and agree on framing the narrative in a way that is profitable to both. We'll call those who are for the expansion of abortion access, the subsidizing of abortion access, the calling of abortion sacred ground. We'll call those folks pro-choice. Yeah, there you go. There's a marketing gimmick for you. Pro-choice. Yeah, see, it's positive. Positive encouraging. Pro-choice. We're for freedom, right? Yeah, that's what we'll call it. Pro-choice. Oh, and you folks who disagree with us politically, socially, theologically, in all ways, we're going to call you anti-abortion. Yeah, yep, because you will be defined by what you're against. And we will be defined by what we're for. No, no, no. No, the proper distinction has always been and will remain between those who are, on the one hand, pro-life and therefore opposed to the murder of innocent children, on the one hand, and those who are anti-life and in favor of abortion on demand, everywhere and anywhere, and for any reason whatsoever, or even no reason at all. We are pro-life. What does the scripture say? Those who hate God love death. That's what you're all upset about, leftists. You hate God and you love death. Call yourselves rightly. Take off the mask. Let's go. Enough is enough. 50 years, that's enough. My entire life span, plus nearly 15 years, that's enough. I don't care what you threaten. The very fact that these people would threaten such evil, heinous, tantrum-throwing violence because they got a ruling they didn't like from the Supreme Court just goes to show that they are exactly the wrong sort of people to be running the country. 
When I was growing up, we didn't negotiate with terrorists. By golly, we shouldn't start now. Politics is the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best, Otto von Bismarck once famously said. Watch as expectations are now recalibrated across the U.S. in the wake of this decision. And I think of all the possible implications, this general fact that we are all now going to recalibrate our notions of what is possible and attainable and next best, that is the most exciting to me. It is a new day in America this morning. I have never in my whole life, not once, woke up in a country where Roe v. Wade was not, quote-unquote, the law of the land. It is a new day in America. According to reporting yesterday by Tim Pierce at the Daily Wire, Justice Clarence Thomas has already begun his calls as of yesterday for the highest court in the land to reconsider other bad judicial precedents. He wrote, according to, again, reporting by Tim Pierce, the Daily Wire, in agreement to Justice Samuel Alito's majority opinion, quote, we should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents, including Griswold, Lawrence, and Obergefell, end quote. For those of you unfamiliar, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, enshrined a right to contraceptives. And if you are my age, or even close to it, and that was 21 years before I was born, so you don't even have to be very close to my age. But if you're even close to my age, you don't even know what it's like to live in a country where people might tell you no. You, you, might, you might be told no when you want contraceptives. Contraceptives being, for any children listening, things which prevent contraception. That is to say, birth control. Why do we think in this country that we have a right to birth control? My wife and I do not use birth control, to be clear, in large part because we did the research. For instance, we studied our Bibles, and we didn't see a lot of precedent for the attitude inherent to contraceptives, except for a certain guy named Onan in the Old Testament, who got struck dead. Uh, Onanism, if you're not familiar, you're going to learn all kinds of new words today. Onanism is another word for uh, masturbation. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, but Onan's sin was not, it's, it wasn't masturbation. Onan's sin was that he did not want to get pregnant. The woman, he had a responsibility to get pregnant. Also too, it's interesting when you read the Old Testament prophets, being faithless to the wife of your youth certainly does seem, I mean, you, you go read it for yourself by all means, but the way I read it certainly does seem as though it has to do with giving her children. If she wants to have children, guess what? She's supposed to want to have children. And guess what? You're also supposed to want to have children. You think you've been liberated. You haven't been liberated from Jack Diddley's squat. You're a slave to your own selfishness. That's what it is. But for all our lives, we have been told that we have a right to contraceptives. We have a right to birth control. You have a right to birth control? Also, in the research that we did on birth control, there's a lot of young women who take birth control early when they're fertile, 
when they're at the most fertile, let's say their late teens, early mid twenties. And then once they've established themselves in their career, once they've got their education, they've settled down, they've decided that they want to have a family, they want to have children, they can't. All of a sudden they can't. Because the birth control jacked up their body's ability to regulate hormones the way that it's on, the, the way that it's supposed to, where the way that it needs to. And now they really, really want to have kids, but they can't. Or it's really, really hard, really, really difficult. You know, check out Edwin Black's War Against the Weak. It is a history of the eugenics movement in the US and the UK, and then subsequently Germany. A hundred years ago, poor, mentally ill, criminal, disruptive, minority men and women in America were forcibly sterilized by people who thought they shouldn't reproduce. And that kind of thinking did not just go away. I think what it did instead of going away is it talked the would-be subjects of sterilization into doing it to themselves. I'd like to do an episode here coming up. We don't have time in this episode, but I'd like to do an episode coming up exploring what it's like for me to hear from men that they have just gotten a vasectomy or that they got one years ago. Oh, and it's great. Oh, that's great. Have you ever thought about getting a vasectomy? Uh, no, actually, except that I have thought about how I don't particularly appreciate the idea of being spayed or neutered. Uh, no, no, the Bob Barker treatment, not for me, but that's for another episode. Stay tuned in coming days and weeks. We will get into that. <laughs> but Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, in trying to write to contraceptives. Clarence Thomas is saying that needs to be reconsidered. That was a bad president. That was a bad judicial ruling. That needs to be revisited. Also, Lawrence versus Texas, 2003, read into the Constitution a right to certain private sexual conduct, namely the right to a same-sex relationship. Do you actually have a right to certain private sexual conduct? The privacy of your bedroom, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's not stopping there, by the way. When chief diversity and inclusion officers can send out emails because it's Pride Month and embed in the emails the music video for Lady Gaga's Born This Way. And now we're all treated to 10 minutes of in-your-face, demonic, sex magic depravity. Lady Gaga's going to dance around in her underwear with horn implants in her forehead and on her shoulders as some kind of a weird, perverse... On purpose. I'm not... Like, I say perverse... I mean perverse, like as perverse as it can possibly get. When that's in your face, because it's Pride Month, because it's June, and don't you dare object to it or else you're the bigot. No, you know what? I feel like a few decades ago, sexual harassment was against the law. I feel like this is not appropriate. But 2003, boy howdy, we've come a long ways in 19 years. You have a right to certain private sexual conduct, namely the right to a same-sex relationship. I think it stops being private sexual conduct when you're literally parading through the streets and flying a flag above your business. I, you know, like where's my flag? Right? Where's my flag for heterosexual Pride Month? Do I get to fly a flag 
for my heterosexual pride. Like, that's dumb. How perverse. No. Like, we're tired of it. We are tired of the in-your-face sexuality, pornographic. It's not even sexy. You know, the crazy thing here in recent years, you watch even just a little bit, before, like while you're on your way to turning off the Super Bowl halftime show, you watch the performance of uh, Jennifer Lopez and Shakira at the Super Bowl. I don't remember if it was this most recent one or a couple of Super Bowls ago. I think it was two or three Super Bowls ago. I don't know. But you watch the Super Bowl halftime show, the performance. And at least me, like I'm just thinking to myself, like this is not sexy. This feels really aggressive and hostile. Like this feels, this feels not sexy so much as sexual harassment. Like our whole country has been sexually harassed for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. And, and yet every year I'm supposed to take the sexual harassment trainings telling me about how me as a man, like I am not supposed to make unwanted, unsolicited sexual advances towards my coworkers. And now only recently have I started to see just a little bit of the creeping in of a balanced treatment. Hey, you know what? Actually, also too, women. Women should not make unwanted sexual advances towards men or towards other women. Also that. That's also the implication. And yet, maybe the Supreme Court revisiting this gives us a little bit more of ordered liberty instead of licentiousness and libertine sexual abandon. And maybe we actually have real liberty instead of a free people's suicide like Oz Guinness is writing about. I hope to finish up his book today while I work. Another Supreme Court decision that Justice Thomas says should be reconsidered. That's the word he uses. We should reconsider all of the court's substantive due process precedents. Obergefell versus Hodges, 2015. This is actually the Supreme Court decision which launched my cousins and I into blogging. On the Rocks blog was launched because of Obergefell versus Hodges. And in the past seven years since then, I have been blogging and podcasting in earnest because we need to develop a robust Christian worldview and not just the gospel, quote unquote. All we know is that Jesus died for our sins and yet we are licentious and libertine and we do sin that grace might abound all the more. And then we brag about it. And we affirm those who brag about it. And we applaud them. And we give them book deals. Grace, grace. It's cheap grace. This has been done before. This is not new, actually. Ladies and gentlemen, read your Bible. Read a history book. You will see. This is not any new thing under the sun. But again, politics is the art of the possible, the attainable, the art of the next best by Otto von Bismarck's reckoning. And we all need to recalibrate our expectations of what is possible, what is attainable. By the close of the year, suppose we get a supermajority of Republicans who have a spine, the kind of Republicans that won the Civil War in the House and in the Senate, and suppose we can protect our conservative Supreme Court justices, and suppose also that Elon Musk buys Twitter, and suppose also maybe just maybe we have free speech, freedom of religion, the continued right to keep and bear arms, not just for Ukrainians, by the way, also Americans, if it's God-given and inalienable, that means <laughs> not just when you feel like it. 
Lastly, because I'm running out of time here and I do need to run, I want to take the last little bit of this episode and recognize the fact that it is Lawrence and my second oldest son, Elihu James Mullet's birthday today. He turns 14. Elihu James Mullet turns 14 years old as my wife, Lauren, drives north with our sons, Solomon, Enoch, John, and Andrew, plus our daughter, Evelyn, to Gillette, Wyoming, to pick him and our oldest son, Josiah, up from Buck and Tamara DeBille. The two of them, Josiah and Eli, both spent a week in Savage, Montana this past week. Buck and Tamara graciously offered to pick them up on Monday. Our two oldest sons especially, and their two oldest sons when we lived in Montana, were best friends. Jack and Kai to Bill, Kai and Jack to Bill, which is funny because we moved here and then we we made friends with the Polk family at church. And they also have two sons that are about Josiah's and Eli's age. And their two sons out of their six, they have six sons, almost as many as we do, almost. Um, two of their sons who are Josiah and Eli's age are also named Kai and Jack. So we've got a Kai and Jack to Bill in Montana. And then we move here and we literally met another Kai and Jack. And they are also good friends with Josiah and Eli. But our two oldest, we will have back. Lauren has been missing them very much so. But today is Eli's birthday. And that was part of the reason why they came back today or are coming back today. Meeting at the halfway point, Gillette, Wyoming. Uh, the northmost significant city on the way to Montana is pretty much exactly halfway between Greeley and Savage. Then they'll make the trade, I think have some lunch, hang out for a little bit before coming home. As is our tradition on our children's birthdays, I want to talk a little bit about the meaning of our children's names, specifically Eli's because today's his birthday. Elihu is a Hebrew name that means literally, my God is he, or he is my God. James is also a Hebrew name having the exact same meaning as Jacob, which means supplanter or substitute. Elihu, as many of you know, is an angry young man who figures prominently in the book of Job. He hangs around for several days listening to Job and his three friends going back and forth about God's justice and man's sin in ways which are both presumptuous, and whiny by turn. But then Elihu weighs in, and he sets the record straight. And I didn't know this. I was actually just doing a little bit of research this morning and found it out. Some scholars think Elihu was actually the one who wrote the book of Job. So there's a fun fact. Also, Elihu is believed to be a descendant of a nephew of Abraham's. So that gives us maybe some idea of where the book of Job falls chronologically in the overall history timeline of the Old Testament. James, meanwhile, was half-brother to Jesus. He didn't first, at first, <clears throat> believe that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus' brothers, because Jesus did have half-brothers, Mary and Joseph went on to have other children after Jesus was born, although 
It says that Joseph did not know his wife while she was pregnant with Jesus. James did not at first believe in his brother Jesus, that he was the Christ. But he came to believe, and then he not only became an important leader in the early church, known as James the Just, he also wrote the book of James in the New Testament. And James, in the New Testament, letter from James is my favorite book of the New Testament. I love its calls for practical godliness. Practical godliness. It is the equivalent of the Old Testament wisdom literature of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, etc. I love the connection that draws faith and works together in the book of James. And I love that he rejects emphatically the antinomianism and lawlessness, which even in the first century church was so often so often a, a tempting error, and we still have it with us today. And we still need to reject it. And with James's admonitions, we have a better chance. But we call Elihu, our son Elihu, Eli for short, typically, in some measure, because so many people are just not familiar with his full name. And this is, I think, I presume, because they're not familiar with the Bible either. Every now and then we'll encounter people and we'll tell them his full name and they'll say, oh, like from the Bible? Yeah, that's right. But whether people are familiar or not, I loved the bold young man from the book of Job when I was a bold young man, a bold younger man. I was very comforted by his example and I wanted Elihu to be a kind of spiritual patronym for our son, for our second oldest son. Now, in closing here, wrapping up, Lauren was actually pregnant with our oldest son, Josiah, when I at least learned what abortion was through a website called abort73.com. I was shocked by images and statistics and testimonies I saw at abort73.com. And that was a large part of what inspired us to have a big family ourselves, Lauren and I, or at least to not interfere with actively the Lord blessing us with so many children. That was a deep and abiding conviction that I came away from finding out what abortion was, that there is a significant disconnect between the popular attitude held by many Americans on the one hand, and what the Bible says about having children and raising a family on the other hand. There's something deeply, badly broken in the way we think about children and the way we approach having children and the way that we approach raising our children. It's broke. And Lauren and I were just two poor young college students when we got married. It immediately got pregnant with Josiah. I mean, I think, I'm sorry, but I, I think... We got pregnant like the day we got married, pretty sure, because he came along uh, eight months later, like, <laughs> and, he, and he was four weeks early. So you do the math. Had we been completely different people, I don't know what we might have done or even just considered doing just a few short months after Josiah was born when we found out that we were pregnant again already. Didn't know that could happen so soon. Didn't think it could happen so soon. We weren't trying to get pregnant again so soon, but we found out we were pregnant again so soon. There's only 11 months difference between Josiah and Eli. 
They are Irish twins. So actually, both Josiah and Eli, until the end of July, will be 14, which always galls Josiah. Poor guy. Eli likes it. He loves it. But a lot of folks treated us like we were irresponsible and even crazy to have kids. So soon after getting married, having gotten married so young, then to have our kids so close together, and then to keep on having kids. And it got so bad that I would say we were pretty much outcasts to all but our immediate family and closest friends for several years, really until we moved back to Montana. That was a large part of why we moved back to Montana in 2012. Got married in 2006, moved back to Montana in 2012. Celebrated our sixth, sixth, yeah, our sixth wedding anniversary in Montana. By God's grace, we chose life. And for all of the many things that I could legitimately regret, I don't at all, even a little bit regret our having chosen life. Not for a moment. We have both, Lauren and I both, have definitely made mistakes and foolish choices, but having every one of these children was not a mistake. So with such considerations in my mind, I celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade. I could not be happier about it because righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Behold, children are a heritage from Yahweh, the fruit of the womb, a reward. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you and God bless the United States of America. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.